25 years. 25 years ago was 1994. 1994. Uh, among many other things that year, we might remember uh, O.J. Simpson fleeing the police in his white Ford Bronco. The Montreal Expos had the best record in Major League Baseball when the Players Union went on strike and ended the season. Uh, Bill Clinton was serving the second year of his first term as President of the United States. Who remembers Netscape Navigator? The web browser was released and became the number one internet browser before Microsoft eventually released Internet Explorer the next year, not till 95. Uh, and I'm sure many of us remember all of those America Online compact discs that were flooding our mailboxes, promising us free trial membership. You've got mail. Who remembers the, mo- the modem sounds back then? How could you forget, right? How could you forget? Kiddos, you might have to YouTube that later so that you can share in the joy. 25 years. What were you up to in 1994? How many of you weren't alive yet? (laughs) You you kids are younger than you look. (laughs) Or maybe older than you look. I should say it that way. Well, 25 years is also the amount of time that we've journeyed together with Abraham so far since Genesis 12. Uh, When God told Abraham to go from his country, when God promised to make from Abraham a great nation from whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham was 75 years old when God made these promises to him first. And now as we enter into Genesis 21... The 100-year-old Abraham is going to see his son that God promised. So Genesis 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Divine intervention, because it was necessary, right? Sarah was 90, 91 years old when Isaac was born. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. Does that seem redundant? They named him Isaac. Remember, Isaac means laughter. Uh, By the way, why didn't it just say, then a year later Isaac was born? Carrying from the previous narrative, God said that was going to happen. Why didn't it just say... And the next year, Isaac was born. What was emphasized here in a way that you can't possibly miss? As he had said, as he had promised, the time of which God had spoken, his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. What is this passage teaching us about God? Verse 4. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Uh, Verse 5 there serves two purposes. Uh, Number one, the miraculous nature of this birth is being restated. And restated and restated in this passage, yes? Abraham was a hundred years old, Sarah about ninety years old. How did this happen? How was this possible? And then number two, this is the language of a genealogy. 
uh, it's stating the significance of the birth of Isaac as the birth through which Abraham would be contributing to the line that God had chosen. Uh, the other genealogies that we've read in Genesis have the same formula. This person lived this many years, and he bore a son. This man lived so many years, and he bore a son, and he called his name. Uh, with Abraham's part in the genealogy, God is saying uh, that it should read, and Abraham lived 100 years, and then he bore a son, and they named him Isaac. So the genealogy in the line of Christ, we know, right, continues. Verse 6. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Yes, he did. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. That might sound uh, hard to us, that somebody would be laughing at me, right? But that's not what she's talking about. It's, It's a laughter of joy for what Sarah has been given. And by the way, who said that? Who said that? Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Verse 7. This is a wonderful rhetorical question of which the only answer is God. When Sarah says, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? She's so amazed by this. Nobody else was saying this to her. God was the one that had promised that to her. Does that make sense? You were confused because I skipped a line of my notes in case you're wondering. (laughs) That's what happened. God said that. God said that. And she says, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So Isaac, laughter. This is Sarah's triumphant victory speech. Do you ever wonder why God doesn't spend more time or verses on things like these in the Bible? When we're reading through scripture and we think of this major, major event, we think it should just be pages and pages of information. And they got here, what, seven verses? Seven verses. We've been waiting for this since chapter 12, 25 years of their lives, and it gets seven verses? But why should we expect God to make such a big deal out of the fact that he does what he says he's going to do? Is that a thing that we should be surprised? Uh, What is God going to do when he makes a promise? He's going to keep it. He's going to follow through. How great of an encouragement it is to us that God is going to keep all of his promises. How much fuel does that give us to do the things he's commanded us to do? And we're going to talk about that uh, before we're done today. We're going to dig deeper into that idea. But know this, God always does what he says he's going to do. Praise God. Uh, Where we get into trouble is when we make promises up. Remember we talked uh, a month or two ago about designer promises? Or when we expand upon upon the promises of God? And then we get upset. We go do our own thing or or even get angry when we think that God has not kept some promise that he never really made. For instance, uh, Sarah and Abraham really believed that God promised them a child. You know, probably before Sarah was too old to have children. Do you see how that could have been a little bit of a tweak of that promise there? Uh, We wouldn't be too hard on them for thinking that, would we? And since God didn't keep his promise, or so they thought, Sarah came up with a new plan to help God along. And do you remember that plan? It included an Egyptian woman named Hagar. And now that God had kept his promise, Isaac is now born. God's kept his promise just like he intended all along. The result 
the result of Abraham and Sarah's alternate method, namely Ishmael, now needs to be addressed. That's what happens next. Verse 8. Verse 8. And the child, Isaac, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. You know, with the, with the higher infant mortality rate, it was a big deal worth celebrating when the child was weaned, okay? Um, it would have been about two or three years. He would have been about two or three years old. So the idea is we had a child and he didn't die. Let's celebrate. And that's what they did. The desire to celebrate would have been normal. Verse 9, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who is named here. Who's named here? Ishmael? No. Hagar. Hagar, from Sarah's perspective, what is this about? Who is this about? This is a package deal, isn't it? It's not just Ishmael. Ishmael, she's worried about. Remember that when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham, culturally speaking, she rose in rank. And people from the outside of would have considered Hagar the primary wife, if you will, of Abraham. Now Sarah has her baby boy. So there, there will be no rivalry here in her mind. There will be no rivalry here. It says, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. That's the same root word for Isaac's name. And this word is repeated at the end of three verses in a row in the Hebrew so that it would jump out to us visually as we would read it. But Ishmael was laughing at Isaac in a mocking way. Sarah saw the beginnings here of jockeying for position. And she wasn't going to have it. No correction. No training. No compassion. Remember, this was her idea. Instead, Sarah calls for instant and permanent expulsion from the household. So, she said to Abraham, cast out or banish this, and what does she call her? This slave woman with her son. No more names. Just words of class and rank to make it clear who's in charge. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Uh, so Sarah's not even arguing for a firstborn, secondborn status. None of that. None of that. She's demanding Isaac be considered an only child. And verse 11 said the thing was very displeasing. Meaning Abraham thought she was wrong to demand such a thing. It was displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For though Isaac shall, uh, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Okay, so Abraham is comforted by God's promise to give Ishmael an inheritance and a future. He wasn't releasing Ishmael into the wilderness with no help. He was leaving Ishmael by the command of God under the care and the blessing of God, uh, which is a better place to be than Abraham could alone offer. So he obeys. Abraham arose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered, wandered as in aimlessly without direction in the wilderness of Beersheba. And just like that, Ishmael went from being the firstborn son of Abraham to 
a wandering nomad along with his single mother. And Hagar has lost her prominent place as the wife and mother of Abraham's son, the wife of Abraham and the mother of his son, and has now become like a widow. With her son, a young 16, 17-year-old young man, Realize Ishmael was not a little boy when this happened. He was 13, remember, when he was circumcised, and then some time would have passed until Isaac's conception, and then Sarah's pregnancy, and then the two, three years before Isaac was weaned. Abraham didn't send off a young single mom with a baby boy. Ishmael was close to old enough, especially in that day and age, to start living as an adult. What they lost was their connection to a human network, a family, a household uh, where they could easily find a home and work and income. And especially in a time like that, the social structures were pretty lock solid. And where is she going to go from here? Um, In the view of man, that would be an impossible situation. But who promised to bless them? In the view of God, this is exactly what he had. So let's see what happens here. Verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Remember, Ishmael was a young man at this point, so Hagar would not have been able to just pick him up and push him under a bush somewhere if he were not in terrible condition. He must have been weak, dehydrated. He was out of it. And both of them were without hope, dejected, defeated. She went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, which evidently that means about 100 yards. For she said... Let me not look on the death of the child. She can't name him now either. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And the Hebrew here gives the idea of weeping uncontrollably. She's lost it. Hagar was devastated. And now what what happened last time Hagar, Hagar was in a situation like this? What happened last time? Remember that time she left the house of her own volition, her own desire, because Sarah was dealing harshly with her, and it was while she was pregnant with Ishmael? Remember that God saw her. The God who sees, El Roy, saw Hagar and looked after her and sent her back. He took care of her. Now, let's see what's going to happen this time. Verse 17, God heard The God who sees is also the God who hears. God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Remember, Ishmael's name means God hears. He says, Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, For I will make him into a great nation. And realize, this is the second time God has said this to Hagar. In the wilderness in Genesis 16, God promised this very thing. And God always does what he says he's going to do. God promised that Ishmael would live apart from the rest of his kinsmen, now known in Genesis 21 as the descendants of Isaac. And that Ishmael would also be the father of a multitude. God was doing exactly what he said he was going to do. And then it says in verse 19, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. 
And God was with the boy. He grew up. He finished growing up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of uh, Paran. And that would have been in the central part of the Sinai Peninsula. Like if you were to take the Sinai Peninsula, which is between Israel and Egypt, and turn it into Michigan, think like Gladwin. And that's where this was, okay? Right in that part of the peninsula. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So, the first part of chapter 21 with the birth of Isaac, taught us that God does everything he says he's going to do. And the second part of chapter 21 taught us that God does everything he says he's going to do. I wonder what the final section of this chapter is going to teach us. Let's see. Now, before we continue reading, I psyched you out there, sorry. Before we continue reading, you might have noticed that we skipped chapter 20. We didn't do chapter 20 last week, did we? Um, But we didn't skip chapter 20. We read chapter 20 along with the narrative of Abraham's She's My Sister campaign. Do you remember that? Uh, The one where Abraham worries about his own skin because Sarah's so beautiful. And then has her tell kings that she's his sister so that the kings won't kill Abraham to get to Sarah. That plan. Do you remember that? Awesome plan, by the way. Or not. Not. We'll go with not. Uh, we only got to see this plan put in action twice. The first time in chapter 12 in Egypt uh, with Pharaoh. The second time in chapter 20. And remember, this was after, after God promised Sarah's pregnancy. This is between the time within that year of God's promise of the pregnancy and the birth of Isaac. In the midst of that time, prior to Isaac's conception, we'll assume, right? So in the first three months or so after God was there and visited and Sodom and Gomorrah happened they do this she's my sister plan again with the king of the Philistines. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And now three years later, King Abimelech comes to Abraham again, this time with his own plan. So now let's read verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God, by your God, Abraham, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. Now, why would Abimelech need to make such a request of Abraham? Abraham, please don't mess with me. <laughs> Let's think about this. Number one, Abraham's wealth Abraham's wealth. Number two, remember that battle with those kings that Abraham saved Lot from? When they came down and swooped down and took Sodom and Gomorrah in the first place, and Abraham and 318 of his men chased them down and defeated them? Abraham is a force in this area, and he's just moved to outside of the border of the Philistines, and Abimelech wants some rest from his worries. Does that make sense? Number three, remember just chapter 20, the She's My Sister plan. That happened. And then after that, Abraham has a healthy three-year-old baby boy with his now 93-year-old wife. Abimelech must be thinking, who is this guy? How powerful is his God? Uh, Abimelech probably sees Abraham at this point as a man with some serious faults, some fear issues, yes? Who, though, has a strong God, a seriously strong God who is seriously blessing him? 
doing exactly what he said he was going to do. And so Abimelech wants some rest from his concerns. And Abraham said in verse 24, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard it heard of it until today. It seems as though Abraham uh, brought this up during the negotiation process before the I will swear, perhaps. And, and what's happening? Abimelech is saying, you didn't tell me. What does that sound like? I didn't know you, she was your wife. Why? Well, you didn't tell me. You got to keep the communication lines open, please, Abraham, he's saying. Verse 27, so Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. And the word there is they cut a covenant. Do you remember cutting a covenant? So these sheep and oxen were probably cut in half and laid out to make a little pathway for Abraham and Abimelech to walk through together to show their commitment to this treaty, to this covenant. And then verse 28, after that, Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? And he said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. He's still on that well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba. Interesting, that's where Hagar had headed towards, right? That place was called Beersheba, and that word means well of an oath. The well of an oath. Because there, both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech, which his name, by the way, means my father is king. That's what, that was the name. And they didn't necessarily say, hey, king so-and-so. They just became Abimelech. That was their title. Because it, it, it showed that they were the next in line. Does that make sense? So that's how they named that in the Philistine people. Um, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. Abimelech and Phicol, uh, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. Evidently that would have uh, meant that you planned on staying there for a while. And called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. We've seen this a couple times. When it says this, it means that Abraham worshipped and publicly proclaimed The name of the Lord. There's a witness here. There's a testimony here to the peoples around him. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So, in Genesis 21, we have three different people reminding us that God keeps his promises. We could say, number one, could be the narrator or the writer of this passage. uh, Reminding the reader throughout the account of Isaac's birth that all of this was exactly <clears throat> exactly what uh, had been said that God would do. Even down to the command for circumcision and the timing of that which Abraham would not have needed to ever obey if Isaac wasn't coming. Right? The sign of the circumcision promised was a pointer to the promise of God to bring about through the offspring, the offspring. And so even that pointed forward what was coming. And Isaac then was born. God did this. The narrator, the writer, reminds us of this. Number two, God himself. In the portion of this chapter dealing with Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness, God himself reiterates his promise to Hagar for Ishmael. 
uh, which can also serve to remind us, right, that, that though God was sovereignly bringing about a special, a special chosen nation through Isaac for his purposes, for his salvific purposes, his eyes are also on all the nations. The Savior would come through Isaac, but that Savior would die for all the nations. A great reminder of that. He is the one true God of all the earth and has promised to save a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And then number three, the Philistine king Abimelech. The pagan Philistine king Abimelech. Who simply saw all that was happening in Abraham's life and knew that something else, it wasn't Abraham, something else had to be making Abraham so successful. And then Abimelech rightly deducing that the blessing must have come from Abraham's God, as God had promised it would. So it's confirmed. Up to that point in history, God has kept all his promises. Sound great? Sounds great. Good for Abraham. Good for Sarah and Isaac, because he's alive now. Good job, Isaac. Good for Hagar and Ishmael. Yeah, God's promising things to them and going to give them an inheritance and a future. But how is this good news for us? How is this good news for us? How does this stir up and breathe life and vibrancy into our faith? How does it fuel us in our fight against sin, our pursuit of righteousness? Uh, We aren't going to say during a time of temptation, you know, as if we're saying, should I do this sinful thing or not? Well, no, because Abraham and Sarah had baby Isaac, and they were really old. That did the trick. I don't know that any of us have had that thought process. Have you ever done that? No? Okay. Why not? Because Isaac isn't going to help you right now. (laughs) Isaac had his own problems, didn't he? Isaac had his own problems. There are two major thoughts that we have to keep in mind in order... For a passage like this to be rightly applied to help us now, in the here and now. Number one, we must be more amazed by the promise giver, the promise keeper, than we are with the object of that promise. Let me say that again. We must be more amazed by the promise giver, the promise keeper, than we are with the object of that promise. We should certainly enjoy what God gives. Amen? God is a giver of good gifts, and we should be thankful and appreciate those things and enjoy those things. But it would have been totally wrong for Abraham to worship Isaac when he came out of the womb. Why? Because Isaac didn't do anything. God did that. God did that. When the greatest delight in our eyes... The greatest delight in our hearts becomes the object, then everything gets turned around. And the very next step in that worship exchange, displacing God and putting something else in his rightful place, the next step is to make myself the chief end of God's existence. I am happy because I finally got what I wanted. And that's when we start telling God what to do, how to perform, uh, what our expectations are, 
making our own designer promises. And that is when we get the idea of something like being angry with God. As if we could give him a one-star rating on Google for slow and incomplete service. Now, if, if Abraham and Sarah's acquisition of the object of the promise, Isaac, if that's the biggest thing in this narrative today, then the moral of the story is, if you trust God enough, if you trust his promises, if you have enough faith, then you'll get whatever it is, that, that thing that you always wanted. You'll get it. And if you think about that application that has nothing to do with who you are and has everything to do with what you're going to get, as if to say, here's the logical conclusion of that thinking, I don't need to change. God needs to change my circumstances. And that's a huge misrepresentation of who God is, a huge misrepresentation of who we are, and it's a recipe for disaster. So we must be more amazed, more delighted by, more desirous of the promise giver, the promise keeper of our Lord than we are with the object of his promise. He alone is worthy of our worship. And we can take that even to heaven. I am looking forward to heaven, are you? But you know, the best thing about heaven is not that I'm going to be there. And the best thing about heaven is not going to be streets of gold. I said this a few weeks ago, a mansion over the hilltop. Remember that song? Heaven is going to be wonderful because of the maker of heaven. He's there. That's why it's wonderful. We have to be amazed by him. He alone is worthy of our worship. And then number two, until everything is made right, until that day comes, remembering the promises kept in the past will only encourage us if we look to the future. Let me say that again. Until everything is made right, until that day comes, remembering the promises kept in the past will only encourage us in the present if we look also to the future. Now, here's, here's what I mean. God has made promises. Uh, some of them have already been fulfilled. Some of them are in process of being fulfilled. Uh, namely, one of those things, our sanctification. And some of them are yet to be fulfilled. If all I think about is what God has done in the past, and I ignore what God is going to do, how does that help me in the present? If the birth of Isaac was the end of the promise, if that's where it got cut off, uh, what would Abraham and Sarah have to hope in if, if Isaac got super sick? Or, I don't know, uh, was required for sacrifice? Stay tuned. If God only promised Isaac, would there still be room for despair? Would there, would there still be room for hopelessness? What would come when a new crisis arose in the life of Abraham and Sarah? That's not enough. Does that make sense? There's more, there's more, there's more. Where is it? It was God's promise of what was going to come through Isaac in the future that gave them fuel for their faith and obedience. And so what does this look like for, for you and me today? 
Let's look at Romans 8. Go ahead and turn to Romans 8. We're going to look at some verses there. For the Christian in the time of the new covenant, we need to look past, look to the past, think of where we are now, and think of the future. And this is all in Romans 8. Starting in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. Amen? For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For, and here's, here's our key for today right here. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God did what he promised to do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God has done what he promised to do. You are saved if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your Lord. So then is that it? If, we, if all we know is that we're saved and not going to hell, is that all we know? Is that all we need to know for encouragement today? As since we're saved from punishment, we can just go back to our old lifestyle and all of its uh, terrible present consequences. Can we continue in sin that grace may abound? Uh, which, right, includes all of the emotions associated with guilt. That'd be a terrible thing for us. Verse 15, 16, and 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. The old life. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Remember, Sarah would not let Hagar be a joint heir with her son. But God hasn't said that concerning us. Praise God. We have something to look forward to in the future. And yet it says at the end of that passage that there's suffering here in the present. There's suffering here in the present. How do we deal with that? Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be future revealed to us. Glory to be revealed. Uh, John Piper wrote a book called Future Grace. Future Grace. And then, of course, look at verse 28. And we'll read that through the end of the chapter. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's in the present and into the future. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed future to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, past, he also called, sort of presenty. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, future. I say sort of presenty, meaning my salvation's in the past. I put my faith and trust in Christ in the past. Some people are doing it about now. Some people had done it a week ago. Some people have done it ten years ago. Some people will do it five years from now. Does that make sense? Those things are happening in the present day. What then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's, that's past and that's future. Who shall bring any charge against God's elected? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, passed. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us, present. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? The sufferings of the present time. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, our present sufferings, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able, future, to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We look to the past, all of Scripture's historic events. We see God's faithfulness on display, keeping every one of His promises. We rightly then regard Him as perfect and holy, and faithful, and able to do what he has said he's going to do. And then, in that confidence, we look forward to the grace we are going to experience. Faith. We delight in the object of those promises. We certainly delight in those things and are excited about those things. We look forward to those things. But we glory even more in the giver. Of those gifts. And then that hope, that eager expectation, that excitement, that faith, looking forward to things not yet seen, graces we have not yet enjoyed, that faith gives us the fuel that we need in this present time, in these present circumstances to live like the conquerors that we already are in Christ Jesus. How can we grieve, but not as those who have no hope? How can we be content, even in the midst of suffering? How can we lay aside every weight, every sin that so readily seems to drag us down, and then keep running forward? How can we be always of good courage in the midst of the sufferings of this world? By knowing and believing that God always keeps his promises. He has in the past, he is now, and he will in the future. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, By the way, I'm answering all these questions with the same passages of Scripture they came from. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. By looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. By looking forward and seeing Jesus as our goal and highest reward. And eagerly awaiting the day that our King, our Savior, our Lord will return. The dead in Christ will rise first 
and we who remain will be caught up together to be with him, and so shall we always, forever, be with the Lord. God has always kept his promises. May that give you confidence as you look forward with faith in what God has promised to us in the future. And may your faith, may our faith in the promises of God's grace to come give you strength and encouragement to follow him, may his promises of grace give you the strength, the fuel that you need to follow him with your whole heart today. Let's pray. Father, you have a perfect record and we praise you for it. We thank you for it. We thank you that as Christ suffered and bled and died on the cross, as he endured your wrath, separation from you, as he, before he breathed his last breath, was able rightly to say, it is finished. God, we thank you for keeping your promises. And Lord, we thank you that you are keeping them now. And Father, we eagerly look forward to seeing the culmination of all of your promises kept. And God, we thank you that when we see you face to face, when you've made everything new, when your dwelling place will be with your people, we won't need to look to the future anymore to fight sin because there will be no sin to fight. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. May we remember them. May we eagerly long for that day. And God, may we in that hopeful and eager expectation seek you with our whole heart, worship you with our lives, give our lives as a right and good sacrifice of worship in this present day. And we pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.